Please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 12 to 26 all the way through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All those with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akadoma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was to be taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray before we look at the text. Lord, help us now. Help me now. To proclaim your word. And your dear people to hear it. Receive it. To rest in it. To rejoice in it. You are in absolute sovereign control as you extend your kingdom. For the glory of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we began looking at the book of Acts, the opening 11 verses, and we discovered um, from the outset that what controls the story of the church and of Jesus is his ascension into glory, the ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. And now, because Jesus has been raised and ascended, Luke, the author, he wants us to know that the work he began to do is the work he continues to do. To this very day. And this morning, I, I want to re-anchor us to what we saw last week. 
the sovereign activity of God acting in the book of Acts. The sovereign activity of God acting in Acts. The risen Lord Jesus fulfilling his purpose as it, his purpose, marches through history. Now, through Luke's writing, God wants his early church, and now us, to live with an awareness. Okay? A growing awareness of and a confident trust in the sovereign plan of God being worked out in time. A growing trust or a growing awareness of and a confident trust in the sovereign plan of God being worked out in time. That is the lordship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ being actively exercised in the church. So the question for us this morning, beloved, is this. What will the active mindfulness of those two things produce in the people of God? Okay, that is a growing awareness of and a confident trust in the sovereign plan of God being worked out in time. What will those two things produce in the people of God? Ponder that as we work our way through this. Now, although um, it is inevitable that there is opposition to God's purposes, there have been and there will continue to be um, regardless, um, the advancement of God's sovereign plan and purpose, friends, it is unstoppable. Unstoppable. Nothing can impair it in the slightest. Not the most unthinkable betrayal, which happened with Judas. Not even the most horrific expression of brutality and hatred against God, which happened at the crucifixion. None of those things can thwart God's purposes. None of those things were a surprise to God, as we shall see. God's purpose to save men and women throughout every tribe, tongue, and nation of people, friends, it is unstoppable. And we have to know this. So our growing awareness of that and confidence in that translates into a certain kind of activity for the people of God. Or I should say certain kinds of activity for the people of God. That is what we will observe this morning. There are three observations relative to the text before us this morning. The first is a confident trust in waiting on God. Confident waiting on God. Number two is dependent prayer to God. And number three, a commitment to the authority of the word of God. Number one, a confident waiting on God. 
Number two, dependent prayer to God. And again, number three, commitment to the authority of God's word. We'll see that unfold as we work our way through. But first, I'm a review because uh, there were some significant things um, that have been said and have taken place up to this point. It, it all connects, so it's important we understand. If we go back to verse 4, Jesus, as he gathered them, his disciples together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Notice, but he calls them to wait. To, to wait for what the Father had promised. And he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, they cannot do what God has commissioned them to do until they're enabled to do it. All power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. They cannot do that until they're empowered to do that. But in verse 6, notice, they ask, Lord, will you at this time, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, in their minds, that's a good and logical question, but it's very limited in range regarding the kind of restoration Jesus is after. It's very limited. Remember, their minds are log-jammed with an interest in the hope of seeing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, realized in the, in the restoration of Israel's national independence. Primarily because, if you remember in our study in Acts, they were captivated by the thought of holding positions of authority in that kind of kingdom. Do you remember that? Could we sit on your right hand on your left? Positions of power. The Lord's answer, if you notice, transcends all expectations about the kind of kingdom he is building and its ultimate expression. He says to them in verse 8, It is not for you to know times or dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You see, they were concerned with the when of the kingdom's full consummation. He wants to them, Jesus that is, wants them to know how it's going to come about. They were expecting that the full consummated expression of God's promises would come to pass in one cataclysmic moment. But that, my friends, is something that's reserved for the second coming. The consummation, that is a new heaven and a new earth. Notice what he says. Okay, but it's not for you to know times and seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Witnesses of the king. The king of the kingdom. You will be my witnesses, notice, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Those three phrases come from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet, chapters 32, 43, 44, and 49, concerning Yahweh's suffering servant, the Messiah, 
Jesus, who is the Christ, and those who belong to him. And their witness of him. Their witness about him, that is his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascended reign. Prophesied in Isaiah. Now, with the first coming of Jesus, beloved, the first coming of the king, the age of the kingdom has been introduced. When Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom. Amen? It is not postponed. Until some time yet future. The kingdom is now. Jesus said, behold, the kingdom is upon you. When he comes again, that kingdom that he established when he came the first time will be fully consummated. It will supersede the inaugurated version. So there's two expressions of his kingdom that overlap. The already established kingdom, the church age, and the not yet consummated kingdom, that version. That is to say, this is the kingdom age. The church age is the kingdom age. Remember, for instance, when the angel visited Mary, you will have a son conceived of the Holy Spirit. You shall call his name Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, he will rule over the house of Jacob, that is, the house of Israel, for how long? Forever. Question, who's the house of Israel? All those who believe in the king. All those who trust in the king of the kingdom. And as I said last time, beloved, the church does not replace Israel. As we read all of scripture, the church is the true Israel of God in full bloom. That is to say... The church is to Israel what the butterfly is to the caterpillar. That is the caterpillar in a new phase of existence. God's one plan throughout redemptive history has come to full bloom with the coming of the king and the sending out of his witnesses. A kingdom made up of an international, multi-ethnic people. God's elect from throughout the Nations, that is God's true Israel, his redeemed people. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, for we are all one in Christ. The middle wall of separation has been broken down, we read in Ephesians 2, and the two men have become one in the King, Jesus Christ, which means the mission is no different for us to this very day. What do we declare? We declare that the king has come in the flesh. God incarnate has come. He came to die for the sins of many. He was raised the third day. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. You are called to repent and believe in him in order to experience his forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Message is the same. We are kingdom what witnesses a kingdom of priests the church of jesus christ and we proclaim the same message until the next event on his redemptive calendar and that is the glorious unmistakable anything but secret return notice verse 10 don't stand gazing up into heaven says the angel 
to his disciples. This Jesus, notice, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Notice, in the same way. Notice, look at what constitutes that sameness. Look at the text. This Jesus, that is, the eternal Son of God himself, still possessing a glorified human nature and body, this same Jesus will return in the same way. His return then, beloved, it will be personal but not private. Here, his disciples privately witness his ascension, but when he returns, we read in the book of Revelation, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him, visible and glorious it will be, and all who have rejected the king of the kingdom, we read these words. When he returns, every eye will see him, and they will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. They will cry out, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. What, where is that throne? On earth or in heaven? In heaven. They will cry out. Cover us, these rocks, these mountains, from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, these disciples are going to go on. They're going to understand about the kingdom, and they're going to spread the gospel worldwide. Therefore, he says, don't be standing around looking up, but because between his going and coming, there must be another coming and going. That is, the Holy Spirit must come, and you boys must go. Amen? That's where we are. And that leads us to our first point in the text this morning. That all leads up to this. And our first observation with regard to that is a confident waiting. A confident waiting. Verse 12. Then they returned. Those who witnessed his ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. A Sabbath day's journey, this doesn't mean this was on the Sabbath. That's just a, a simple Jewish way of defining distance. About two-thirds of a mile. 15-minute walk. So they return to the, is emphatic by the way, the upper room, perhaps the same upper room for which Jesus had the Last Supper. Don't know for certain, but this is a place they all, all met. And they are in the time between the promise that has been made and the promise being fulfilled, which we shall see in chapter 2. They're in between. And until then, they are to what we all love to do, wait. One of my uh, favorite modern musical poets who just died few months ago, um, in one of his songs, writes, the waiting is the hardest part. I don't like to wait. Waiting is hard. Learning to wait is harder. But let me say this, it is vital to the Christian life. Came across this quote this past week, it goes like this, second only to suffering 
Waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us ever encounter. End of quote. We all go, yeah, yeah, amen. <laughs> Don't we not? So here we see this confident waiting because of a growing awareness and a confident trust in God's plan being worked out in time. Remember, they have experienced three years of intense training. And here they are waiting. So it begins to translate here into one of the sweetest things that, that a believer can experience. Notice what it is, close fellowship. Fellowship with one another. They're joined together here in unity as they confidently wait for God. Confident waiting. Now, before we look at how they waited, I want you to notice some of them who are waiting. Notice. We see his apostles, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Friends, always without exception throughout the Gospels, when the apostles are listed, Peter is always first on the list. Always without exception, the last one on the list is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord. Here, his name isn't listed. We shall see as we move on, he's dead. And, as a matter of fact, he's in hell. He's referred to as the son of what? Perdition. So often referred to as the 12, they are now 11 minus the one who betrayed the Lord. Okay? Notice also there's the women. Friends, these are the faithful servants of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who traveled with him. They supported them, we learn from the Gospels, out of their, out of their own means for his public ministry. These women, these are amazing women. They're the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Therefore, the first witnesses of his resurrection. Beautiful. Notice Mary his mother, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was called by God to give birth to the Son of God, the head of the church, and here she is now during the birth of his church. And is the last time we ever hear about the blessed mother of the Lord again. Blessed Mary. And then notice there's specific mention of the family of Jesus. Notice his brothers. Friends, the fact that they're mentioned is nothing less than remarkable. The brothers of the Lord. Earlier in the gospel accounts, do you remember, beloved? Their hostility towards him? Back in Mark, in our study of Mark, in chapter 3 and verse 21, they were concerned about him, and they went after him in order to seize him, thinking he was out of his mind. In John chapter 7, six months before his crucifixion, they mock him. And we read there in John 7, 
even his own brothers did not believe in him. What does this teach us? This is an encouragement. The fact that Jesus was no stranger to the pains of an unbelieving divided family. He can relate to you. Many of you suffer because members of your family show continual hostility before God and his gospel. And he wants you to know he can identify with that kind of heartbreak. Have you ever thought about that? That he knows what it's like to deal with unbelieving family members? And he's Messiah? He's Christ? Imagine living with God in your house. What did they, they witnessed him never sinning. The perfect son, to say the least. I'm sure he helped changing their diapers. The perfect Son of God. So this is an encouragement because these same brothers are now here among believers. James is one of them. He would lead the church in Jerusalem and he would pen the epistle that bears his name as well as Jude. Here they are. So that, that makes up roughly 20. So then we ask, well, who are the other 100? Well, we don't know for sure because we're not told, but a little guesswork. Perhaps Nicodemus was there. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, who provided his own tomb for the burial of Jesus. Perhaps. It's okay to speculate. What about the two on the Emmaus road? From Emmaus, Jesus meets them. They're perplexed. They don't understand. They didn't recognize him. And he explains the scriptures to them. Perhaps. What about Mary and Martha and Lazarus? I mean, they, they, they only lived in Bethany. Perhaps. We don't know for certain. But here's a group of 120, an incredibly diverse group, joined together in unity, and they would go out and they would turn the world upside down once the Holy Spirit descends. Unified, waiting on God, a confident waiting. Now, they were waiting for something specific, something that had been promised. Now, for us, our general, our, our general situation is that we live in, in a little bit of a different way. Our waiting isn't quite as defined as theirs was. Yet, in a sense, do we not wait on God every day of our lives? Now, if you're a Christian, you pray. If you don't pray, you ought to pray. If you don't pray, why don't you pray? And as we pray, we wait. And here they are, waiting. We're called to simply trust in God's sovereignty. And we're waiting on him to act. Things regarding the church. Things regarding our families the world, and we wait. God is sovereign. He's king. He's Lord. Notice how they wait. Second point, this is how they wait. Verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer. Joined together constantly in prayer. Literally, it reads 
in the prayer. The prayer. They join together for the designated purpose of prayer, meaning to, to be resolute, to be persistent, to pray and never give up. They pray. And why do we keep praying? Why do we pray without ceasing? Is it to wear God down? So that he finally gives up what, what we ask? Do we earn the right of answered prayer, beloved? No. This is an old cliche, but it's true. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. Prayer doesn't change God. It doesn't change his sovereign will. When we pray, we're aligning our will to his and it transforms us. That's why it's important to know the scriptures and to pray the scriptures back to God. So here they are, steadfastly praying. And many times we don't, get what we, we don't receive what we pray for immediately because we're not ready for what he's promised. And we wait. Now, sometimes people will ask this question. Well, if God is sovereign and he's decreed all things in eternity past, why pray for what he's already promised? Have you ever thought that? Praying according to what God has promised is the very thing we see throughout Scripture. In Sunday school, I did a series on the theology and application of prayer. I thought it was going to be eight weeks. It turned out to be what, guys, like 18 or 20? Because I was learning more and more about prayer through the Bible. And we see that from Genesis 4 on, what do we witness? A people praying God's promises back to him. His promises. Teaching us, and it's very clear that God's promises are what give us license to pray and the confidence that he will hear. What do we read the apostles praying? Come, Lord Jesus. They lift up numerous prayers and they say, nevertheless, come, Lord Jesus. We wait. Confident trust. Prayer according to his word. How can we pray with any confidence unless God himself has made the promise? Confidence is in the promises of God. Aligning our will to his, and here they are. Waiting is not inactive passivity. Waiting is not sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Waiting is to be engaged actively engaged in prayer according to the revealed will of God. Therefore, we must know the scriptures. That's the second observation. There's a confident waiting. There's dependent prayer in that waiting. And notice, third observation, is a commitment to the authority of the word of God. Verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This is Peter. The one who experienced that devastating fall of denying the Lord Jesus Christ three times. You remember the night prior to the denial, what Jesus said to him? He said, Simon, Simon, Luke 22, verse 31. Satan has demanded permission to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you once have returned again, strengthen your brothers. What's he doing here? Strengthening the brethren. How? By the word of God. Edifying the people by the Holy Scriptures. He leads. He leads by preaching, studying, and rightly dividing the word of truth. That's how any pastor or leader is to lead. Preaching, studying, teaching, rightly dividing the word of truth. Not novel ideas. That's no way to lead. Not by performance. That's no way to lead. Here he is. Remember, Jesus opened their eyes with regard to how to interpret the scriptures. Remember that? This is how you interpret the scriptures. Christocentrically. Christ-centered. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, after Jesus had been risen from the dead, he'd been raised up from the grave, he's walking, and he runs into two, providentially, from Emmaus, they're on the road, they're discouraged, they're down, they don't understand what's happened. And Jesus, we read, begins to unfold the scriptures, showing them that the Christ had to suffer and had to die. And he said this, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be what? Fulfilled. Lesson and a reminder. Let me spend a few minutes here. All scripture, friends, from Genesis on is to be read anchored in Christ. Okay, that is to say, Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key. That is, he is the interpretive lens through which we read all the scripture. One of the pitfalls of our generation is to make scripture about us. We ask as we read, you know, what's in it for me? We read, we, we'll just open anywhere. Okay, what, what, what's in it for me? Friends, Scripture is not primarily about how to be a happy, fulfilled Christian man or woman. It's not primarily about that. It's not about what does this text mean to you. you you've heard me say, if you're ever in a Bible study like that, and the leader of the Bible study says, hey, Jimmy, what's this mean to you? What's the answer? It doesn't matter what it means to you. <laughs> it does not matter. What matters is God's intended meaning of the text. That's key. The interpretive glasses we put on when we read Scripture, it's not you. It's not your life, it's not your feelings, it's not Israel, it's not the land of Israel, it's Jesus Christ. Many people have problems reading scripture because they lay their newspaper over the text with regard to what's going on in the Middle East. You don't read scripture like that. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to understand the text. 
the living Christ, the resurrected and ascended Lord. The scriptures, Old Testament, hear this. All of the Old Testament, the Bible says, listen to this from 2 Corinthians 1. As many as are the promises of God, all, all of them are yes and amen in Christ. All of the Old Testament, amen and yes in Jesus, meaning he's the one who fulfills them all. Peter, Peter understands this, as we shall see. So the, the whole of the Old Testament moves in the direction of the arrival of the Messiah. Now, it can be applied in a number, a number of ways, amen? Sure, it can be applied in numerous ways. But how they are interpreted is through Christ. He is the word, he's the living temple of the living God. So the scriptures, again, are primarily about the revelation of God's saving power and the person and work of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That is the grid. He is the grid by which we are to interpret God's word. So you will never be able to answer properly or profitably what is in it for me unless you know what's in it about him. He. Notice, verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, as we read on, he must be replaced. Why? Because there must be 12. Well, what's the big deal? Why can't it just remain 11? Because, beloved, 12, the number 12, is, much, uh, is part of a much bigger story, a grander story. Going as far back as to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and uh, it's consistent all the way to Revelation, 12 is a very important number. Jacob, the one God renamed Israel, had how many sons? 12. The nation of Israel was comprised of how many tribes? 12. The ultimate Israelite, Jesus, by design, his very life reflects national Israel and the Exodus, but successfully. He succeeded where Israel failed because he's the true Israelite. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew, Matthew's gospel applies that to Jesus. The nation of Israel was baptized by way of the Red Sea. Jesus commenced his public ministry, baptized in the Jordan. The nation of Israel, they were tested 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Successfully. Israel went up the mountain to receive the law of God. Jesus went up the mountain to give the new law of God. 
So Israel's purposes are fulfilled in this, the true Israel of God, Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God, requiring now 12 to carry out his mission and message. He's fulfilled it all. Then notice a a parenthetical interlude, beginning of verse 18. Remember, Luke is the author. The original recipient is Theophilus. And here, um, Luke wants to fill in some background, probably not known to Theophilus, so this parenthetical interlude. Now, this man, Judas, acquired a field, okay? That's like a small farm. And with the price of his wickedness, right, it was purchased. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his intestines gushed out. What do you think of that, kids? We'll explain that in a bit. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. The treasurer of the 12 disciples was Judas, who we learn was a lover of money from the get-go. He used to steal from the ministerial purse. Remember all those women giving out of their own means to provide for the ministry of Jesus? He was stealing it. Judas. And he eventually cut a deal for 30 pieces of silver so as to betray the beloved Son of God. And that was the place that he would hang himself. Right there. And he indirectly then purchased this field, this small farm, because the Pharisees uh, would not receive blood money, so they purchased this. His guilt, Judas, was overwhelming. Remorseful, yes. Repentant, no. He committed suicide. So here then, the apostle becomes an apostate. The grossest and greatest crime ever committed by virtue of the one against whom it was enacted, the Son of God. Was it a surprise to Jesus, friends? Not at all. John 6, we're told, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. No surprise. So here now, Peter shows this to us by opening the scriptures. And by opening the scripture, what does that refer to? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Showing us there is no way that this could not have happened. Who's sovereign? God. Verse 16. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning who? Judas. Now that refers to a a divine predetermination. God divinely predetermined this. This is the very plan of God. Prophesied by way of divine inspiration 1,000 years before through the hand of King David. Verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms. 
Let his homestead be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it. That comes from Psalm 69. And let another man take his office. That comes from Psalm 109. So David, writing about events unique to his own time and his own experience as God's anointed king of Israel, he writes about his enemies, right? These, these men who revolt against him. Question, does David realize at the time that what he writes here amidst his circumstances that he's actually writing words that will ultimately be fulfilled about God's Messiah 1,000 years in the future? Highly doubtful. No. Remember, Scripture, all Scripture is written by way of dual authorship. The hand of man as inspired by the Holy Spirit. David penned it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, when Messiah comes, would choose Judas as one of the 12, fulfilling his preordained plan. So, knowing as we do by the teaching of Jesus how to correctly read Scripture, the Bible, we're reminded, is one book telling one grand story. Numerous narratives that make up one grand narrative, all pointing to Jesus. So David's life, along with Israel, its temple, its sacrifices, its rituals, its feasts, its ceremonies, and a host of prophets, priests, and kings, all served a prophetic function pointing to God's Christ, the Messiah. Notice, go back. If, verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, if the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, notice, foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, some of you may be asking, doesn't that make Judas an innocent victim? I mean, if God preordained all of this, does that not make Judas a mere divine pawn? Absolutely not. Everything he did was entirely of his own doing. Are we clear? Entirely of his own doing. Choosing as he did to betray the Lord. Notice verse 18. This man acquired a field with the price of whose wickedness? His wickedness. God didn't make him wicked. We're wicked in and of ourselves. And unless God restrains our wickedness and transforms us by his grace, we're capable of anything. Judas, in his wickedness, according to his fallen sinful nature, perfectly achieves God's predetermined plan. Back in Luke 22, verse, chapter 22, verse 22, 22, 22, Jesus said this, For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, that is, predetermined. But woe. Okay, there you have divine omnipotence, predetermination. But woe to that man 
by whom he is betrayed. Human responsibility. You don't have to mesh those two together. If you try to mesh God's predetermined will together with human responsibility, John MacArthur says you'll be under your bed reciting the Greek alphabet to yourself. Matthew 27 tells us, notice, this field purchased with blood money became a cemetery for strangers, fulfilling this psalm. It fulfills the psalm. And notice, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. Well, you go, wait a minute, Matthew tells us he went out and hanged himself. So as we, 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 we mesh the phrase together, fray, F-R-A-Y, we, we, the, these, we go, well, what does this mean? Well, it means this, quite simply. He, he went and he hanged himself, and his body probably was there for a considerable amount of time until the branch of the tree broke or they cut him down, whatever the case, or the branch broke and he fell. And because of decomposition, when he hit the ground, he burst open. Amen? One of the fathers was telling me they read this to their children. They were all anticipating hearing about his bowels bursting open. So there you have it. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary, okay, this happened according to the predetermined plan of God, therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, okay, meaning necessary, meaning it's the same word used in verse 16, had to be fulfilled. It's according to God's preordained plan. Speaks of divine predetermination. Therefore, it is necessary, as predetermined by God, that of the men who have accompanied us all this time, who witnessed Jesus go out in among us, in and among us, in and out, must replace this man. So there's the criteria that had to be met to replace Judas in this office of apostle. He had to be part of the believing band from the time of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, all the way to and through his ascension. Secondly, he had to be an eyewitness of his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, his arrest, his crucifixion, his dead body, his resurrection, and then his teaching those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension is one who witnessed that the one who died is the same person who was raised again. Witness, according to Scripture. And then thirdly, he would have to be commissioned by Jesus himself to that office, as we'll see in just a moment. Side note, this position of apostle, the criterion here for an apostle, that, that is a clear mark that there are no apostles in our day, beloved. Amen? I don't care what men say on TV. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, you're not. They're all in heaven. So knowing here what the criteria is, they, they whittle it down to two. They prayed. They cry out to God. Lord, show us which one it should be. And only after doing that do they engage in this election process. Notice verse 24. 
Notice, they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you, what? Have chosen. To occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That place is hell, friend. Nothing to laugh about. But very sobering. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Here he makes up 12. So they prayed, seeking God's direction, followed by trusting in God's sovereignty. The same one who chose the other 11 here has already chosen the replacement, verse 24, and they pray that he simply reveal the one for whom he is chosen for this office. And they use a common Old Testament practice of casting lots. And by the way, this is the last time it's ever mentioned. All right? Remember I said last week there are certain things in Acts that are descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, certain parts of the text are describing what took place, what practices took place. They're not prescriptive in that, hey, let's cast lots to discern God's will. See, the Holy Spirit will descend in chapter 2, and we now test all things in light of Scripture as led by the Holy Spirit. So they cast lots, probably stones that had certain markings on them. They, they throw them however they did it. They select one, and it goes to Matthias. You know what's interesting here? you never hear him mentioned again. This is according to God's predetermined will that Judas be replaced. Matthias, the lot falls to him, he's never mentioned again. No platform, no big platform, no notoriety here. He's simply called to fulfill God's preordained plan. That should encourage you, beloved, to live the ordinary Christian life. Well, I'm not really known as a big, giant Christian. So what? Serve God where you are. Wherever you work, wherever you live, serve him where you are, as you are for the glory of God, messengers and witnesses of Jesus Christ. Rest in that. You don't need a big platform. You don't want a big platform. You never hear of him again. So they waited they prayed, and then they respond. Matthias. Now, to, to, to close up, I do not think any of us here would argue, at least theoretically, regarding the importance of prayer in the life of the Christian and his church. Right? Do we pray? How often do we pray? For what do we pray? If we're living aware of God's sovereignty, growing in an awareness of his sovereignty, confident in his lordship, we are going to pray. We're going to be driven to pray. 
that's what's behind the regular instructions and exhortations of the New Testament. Five different places from the New Testament, quickly. Pray without ceasing. Be constant in prayer. Be praying at all times. In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is pretty important. That's exactly, friends, what we see happening in Acts chapter 1. They're waiting confidently in the promises of God. They're, they're praying steadfastly and dependent upon the word of God. And we'll see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit next time. The very thing they're waiting for. So the stage is set for the day of Pentecost. The apostolic team. The, the vacancy Judas left. It's been fulfilled. The vacancy Jesus left by way of his departure, is yet to be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled once the Holy Spirit falls upon these believers and they go out as his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the utter ends of the earth. Proclaiming the king of the kingdom. So we leave these 120 waiting, having one main thing in common. They were all gathered together, one what? Accord. Always beware, friends, of the devil who wants to drive wedges between us, divide us in the unity we have together in Christ. Always be aware. So, what then will a growing awareness of and a confidence in the sovereign plan of God being worked out in time, produce in God's people. That is, what does the lordship of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, actively exercised in the church and through the church look like? What does it translate into? Simply, we, we've seen, we, we witnessed it right here. A people who are waiting, not lazily, but engaged, dependently praying to God as they wait, according to the promises of God, committed to the authority of Scripture. That's what it will produce. That's what it translates into. Do we see this? May we rest in this. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become what? Weary. May God bless his word. To the hearts of his people. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we witness here a man who fell so hard and he rose up that day in the middle of his fellow believing brothers and sisters to remind them of your word, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and deciphered rightly dividing your word, what it means by what it says. Lord, help us, we pray, to know what your word mean by, means by what it says. Help us to have a confident trust as we wait and to wait ever dependent upon you by way of prayer. Bless your people this day as they prepare to go back out into this world to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.